today on 2C Fans. I'm guessing that the larvae and juveniles are probably very vulnerable little guys and gals. I mean, what does a larvae, how big is that? Is it, oh, yeah, is it microscopic? Microns are... <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> it's, um, they're small, very small. They look, when they hatch, like a speck of pepper. You can see it with the naked eye. Uh, they are, the first larval stage is about two millimeters. They, so we're talking sea monkeys. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They, they're about. To Always <laughs> goes back to the sea monkey. <laughs> no, I don't. Hello and welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger. And I'm Joe Nicholson. And we're here with uh, Dr. Phil Gravenice today. Is it? Did I say that right? Phil yes, Gravenice. Okay. And what's your title here? So I am a Moat uh, postdoctoral research fellow in the Fisheries Enhancement and Ecology Program. Mm. How's that treating you? So far, so good. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I've only been here about three months, so it's been a fantastic start so far. Okay. Well, he's new. <laughs> <laughs> Joe says with a devilish laugh. Um, so I, we hear you focus on stone crabs. Uh, how did you get into doing that? I do, yes. Um, I guess it started with my undergrad research. Uh, I did a REU fellowship at Duke Marine Lab, yeah. and we were researching blue crabs at that point in time, and... Uh, it was up in North Carolina, and I happened to come across stone crabs while we were doing the blue crab research, and they kind of intrigued me. I, never, I had never seen one before, and then I found out that it was a really big fishery in Florida. So, Is I it a big of, fishery up there, too? No, it's a developing fishery. Um, oh. it's, it's starting to gain some speed in the North Carolina, South Carolina area, but uh, right now Florida still has, of all the Gulf states, still has the biggest uh, stone crab fishery. Now, now Haley said you're, you're studying stone crabs. What does that mean, you're studying stone crabs? Like you go out and you just go like, hey, there's a stone crab. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what are you mean. actually doing? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things I'm interested is in is looking at the effects of different environmental changes on different components of the stone crab's life cycle um, to try to see how they can tolerate changes like lower levels of oxygen, decreases in pH or increases in temperature. Are you doing anything with the harvesting part of it where, you know, you take one claw or, or two claws? No, I'm not. That's uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife covers um, the monitoring of the population and the harvesting of the claws, and they do all the regula uh, regulations for that. Um, I focus mostly on their larval and juvenile stages, which mm -hmm. are the next set of recruits back into the fishery. Cool. Yeah. The next generation of crabs. Yep. Who knew? <laughs> I, but before we get into the research, um, for somebody who hasn't seen a stone crab, how would you describe it? Uh, stone crabs, well, they, they look just like other crabs. You know, they'll have, do they look like a stone? <laughs> <laughs> they actually kind of do when you're, when you're out snorkeling looking for them. Um, they're mottled. They have dark spots on them. They're brown. But they have these large claws, which are attractive for the fishery. Um, and they tend to hide under rock rubble uh, in seagrass beds. They'll dig out um, holes to live in, or they'll live um, within crevices in the coral reef. So they live in a variety of coastal habitats. But they do. They do look like a stone, essentially. Are the claws as attractive to the lady crabs as they are to the fishery? <laughs> or is there another reason for those claws? Um, well, they're, they're, they use those claws to crush their predators. Um, ah. So they'll eat a lot of shellfish and you know clams or snails, and they, they have one claw that's larger that they use to um, break open the shell and then they have another claw that's more like a pincer it's, it's more um, pointed that they'll use to stick into the shell and pull out all the meat mm. cool Delicious. i know they're yummy <laughs> yeah they, have you ever eaten one i have yes okay. they, they are delicious yeah yeah 
It's yeah. a it's a sweeter meat, and it's um, you eat them. They're prepared a little bit differently than the blue traditional crabs. blue crab. Yeah, yeah exactly. But blue crab's good too. Yeah, they're good too. Yeah. yeah they, I'll eat a pot of both. Those. <laughs> I, I, I should go hang out with you, Phil. <laughs> You're more than welcome to. Joe, Joe alone causes it to be an unsustainable fishery. fishery. I'm just kidding. Get in my belly. Yep. <laughs> but. Uh, because you can harvest a claw without harvesting the crab, does that help in terms of sustainability, or are there still challenges with it? I- yeah, as opposed to the blue crab, because you take the whole blue crab. Right, when you're- right. Yeah, so um, we still, I, I guess the best answer for that is uh, we're not entirely sure. And the reason why is, <clears throat> so you can take both claws if they're over the legal limit, which is two and three quarter inches. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but because of that, we don't really have a true value as far as the number of individuals. So the blue crab fishery, we, we collect the whole animal. We actually have a count of the number of individuals. With the stone crab fishery, because we're just getting, collecting the claws, we don't know if, if it was one claw from one animal or two claws from one animal. And so it's hard to estimate a population. Mm-hmm. Um, Fish and Wildlife try to do a year-long monitoring program where they just go out and collect cra- crabs from their trap lines and give an estimate that way. But the best way the fishery is estimate it for sustainability is through the harvest each year. Now, um, since 2000, if you look at the annual catch uh, of pounds per claw per year, um, since 2000, it's declined by about 25%. Really? Yep. Yep. And there's some other fishing uh, metrics that are out there that are published by Fish and Wildlife that also suggest that um, in the last maybe 10 years or so, it, it might be approaching a point where we think it's going to be overfished or we could label it as overfished but it's it's the verdict is still to be determined Mm. wow that'll be a a big uh that'll be a big deal in florida yeah it's a huge fishery and um people like we have stone crab festivals all over the place it's part of our culture yeah Yeah, yeah. it's um estimated to be i think 34 or 35 million dollars a year oh wow just in florida and that's from all the commercial commercial fishing uh, fishing practices so it's important that you're doing this study you're doing Yes, yeah, because we really don't know anything about their life cycles. Um, there's there's very few studies on the larval stages, um, and there's even less studies on the juvenile stages. And those are the – after they hatch, they go to larvae. They develop as larvae, then they go to juveniles, and they spend cl- probably close to a year as juveniles before they, adult, they mature into adults. So they're out there for a good year or, or so um, doing their thing before they even get back to the fishery. Yeah. So it's important that we know what's happening in those life stages because those life stages tend to be um, a little bit more sensitive to environmental changes, which is why I'm interested in. And that's what you're at looking that. at. You're Correct. looking at the environmental changes to the life cycle of the blue crab. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to simulate some of those changes in the lab and then controlling some variables to look at uh, their survivorship, their development, their growth, um, their tolerance to different uh, environmental factors, and how they can recover from those factors. Um, and I'm hoping that this information can be used with fish and wildlife to maybe figure out ways to preserve those younger stages or those habitats where those younger stages recruit back to. So that way, um, the fishery can stick around. I'm guessing that the larvae and juveniles are probably very vulnerable little guys and gals. I mean, what does the larvae, how big is that? Is it, Oh yeah. Is it microscopic? Microns or <laughs> <Is> you it? <laughs> could, it's, um, they're small, very small. They look when they hatch like a speck of pepper. Ah. You can see it with the naked eye. Uh, they are, the first larval stage is about two millimeters, so tiny. Um, they So we're talking sea monkeys. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They, they're about to, Always goes back to the sea monkeys. <laughs> no, I don't. They, they are, um, 
They are almost the exact same size as them because okay. that's what I feed them the first time. Brine shrimp? Yeah. It's yeah. Brine oh, shrimp. yeah. So they're about the same size. <laughs> My pet brine shrimp is a child. <laughs> but uh, the, the juveniles, um, the ones I'm working with are mostly less than 20 millimeters. So I'm basically wow. in that smaller range uh, of the size of the crab. So how do you know if something's affecting them when they're that little? Is it just a mortality, like how many make it thing? Pretty much, yeah. Nice. We... we Collect them, um, so we get the females, uh, and the females have eggs, and we let them uh, mature throughout the, the two weeks that they take to develop um, in the lab. And then when they hatch, we harvest out the larvae, we feed them, um, and then we, if we're looking at a mortality study for some environmental variable, we'll put those larvae in individual containers. And so each one will have its own little apartment, and we'll go through, and we'll uh, basically monitor to see, you know, the next day, is he alive, is it dead, did it molt? Um, and we document that, and then over the course of the study, we tally all of those results. And we do the same thing for the juveniles. Now, what is the main predator of the uh, stone crab in nature, other than man? Yeah, yeah, we're other definitely one. Other than Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I am. Um, octopus, for one, is very big. Uh, they get into the traps. The fishermen don't like them. Um, they, they can... Uh, so take, take a part of stone crab pretty quickly. Eat more octopus. Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean, we're we don't know a way to keep the octopus out of the trap. Um, so that was one thing that we were trying to figure out uh, to help out the fishermen. But um, yeah, octopus are octopus are, are smart, man. Yeah, they, you know, they can get into. You know, I've seen them unscrew a lid that they were you know inside the jar of. Yeah, they can get into a coke bottle. Yeah, basically, you know, yeah. two or a. If they can squeeze their brain ball. into it, they'll get into it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, are they are they the biggest predator you think? Or um, there's know? no well, I think that's one of the most popular predators because you hear so much about it from the fishermen who get them in their traps. Um, but there's also other predators uh, that that will different fish species will basically peck apart the stone crab to get it to be defenseless and then go in and eat it. Mm -hmm. um, so they come in with little little bites and and snippets and take off. A leg here, a claw there, and then it's hard being delicious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, part of, part of the defense mechanism of the crab is to dehiss one of its legs or claws uh. if it's just like a lizard, just if it's being um, threatened as a way to uh, an escape mechanism. Can you say that term again? De dehiss. Yeah, it de basically means to detach or, or release it without having to um, basically like actually break it off. Okay. So if it, if it feels a little pressure, if you're picking up a stone crab and it feels too much pressure on one of its legs, it'll just basically cut Release that leg. It. Yep, it'll let it go. Wow. Um, and so that's a, it's a way that they try to avoid being preyed upon by certain species. Mm. So we've got, we've got predators out there, we've got humans out there, and we've got, but what about lar habitat. larvae? Yeah, habitat, water quality, what are your concerns in terms of the yeah, young so, ones? Um, well, habitat uh, is a challenge when you start thinking about what's happening with our reef system down in the Keys. And at the, the Keys fisheries for stone crabs is probably one of the biggest. Mm. Um, 90 or 95 percent of the stone crabs in Florida come from that area, and we're seeing decreases in coral cover and increases in disease of corals. Uh, and so that habitat, for the adults at least, is, is um, threatened. But then as we develop more along the coastline, uh, more runoff comes into the water in the coastal areas. And as a result, uh, some of those water quality conditions that are um, changing can be problematic for the different um, life stages. 
When you say water quality changes, are you talking about salinity or temperature or, um, or all of it? All of it, really. So, so with changes in climate, uh, temperature is going up. So the the mean temperature for the summertime is going to increase by a couple degrees, and and I have some data from my dissertation that shows that just the increase in two degrees drops the larval survivorship of stone crabs by seventy percent. Oh my really? God. Yeah, so that they, much? Yep, yep. And there's some other studies in the literature that show uh, increases up to thirty five degrees Celsius um, does the same thing. It really knocks them down. And wow. I, I don't know about the, uh, like the composition of their, their exoskeleton, what it's made of, but what is it? And is OA ocean acidification a concern? Right. Yes. Um, so their, their skeletal composition is magnesium calcite. Um, oh. It's not uh, calcium, like a, like a snail shell. Mm. It's a little bit different, a little bit different chemical makeup. Um, so one of the things I did during my dissertation was to look at the effects of ocean acidification on their calcification. And um, I didn't see any effects on their calcification. <clears throat> I, they, they seem to be okay as far as that's concerned. But ocean acidification did um, reduce their survivorship relative to my, my ambient or baseline scenario mm. um, by 1.5%. So 1.5 1, 1. times more likely to die under OA. They were three times or, or greater um, more likely to die when ocean acidification and temperature were combined. Mm. Yikes. Yeah, so, so <laughs> these changing water quality conditions seem to be having an effect on at least the larval stages. Um, we don't know yet about the juveniles, and that's kind of the next chapter, uh. is to move on and, and see how those juveniles can tolerate these conditions. So um, do you have a lab full of juvenile crabs here somewhere at Moat, or is that sort of thing planned? It's it's in the making. Um, uh, okay. We have, we you have will a, let me know where this lab will be. <laughs> oh, I don't know. No, I don't no, know about don't, that. Don't. When <laughs> I come in and have crabs with, with no claws. <laughs> I know not what you speak of. <laughs> um, but, yes, the, the lab's being designed now. Uh, we have a couple – uh, we have one female in there now that has eggs, um, and she's about halfway through her developmental stages of egg development. And uh, when she hatches, we will start some preliminary trials with the larvae that she releases. Um, but probably by early June, we'll be up and running, and we'll raise the larvae up to juveniles, and then we'll start doing some experiments with the juveniles. Oh. Yeah. Now, you said you started off um, by studying blue crabs up in the northeast, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, would you say Duke? Yeah, I w it was a, a, a National Science Foundation research experience for undergrads, and it was at Duke Marine Lab. It was through at Florida Tech, which was um, where I went to undergrad, but gotcha. we went to Duke to do the research. Now, uh, was there some kind of similarity in the studies you were finding between blue crabs or, uh, um, or what you're finding in the uh, the uh, stone crabs? Yeah, we there's not really any overlap between those studies. Um, the, the blue crab research we were doing, we were the females migrate to the mouth of the estuary to release their larvae. Um, so we were doing a lot of tracking of those blue crabs. We put a, a, an ultrasonic tag on the female blue crab, and then we released her in the estuary, and then we spent the whole night basically following her. Following crabs. Yeah, basically listening to, listening to the pings and finding out where she is and taking uh, salinity and temperature measurements as we're going along and tracking her on our way out. Um, these studies are... Uh, Completely These are different. different yeah. yeah, there's more. I was just wondering uh, if you, if there was some kind of similarity between the uh, the life cycle up there uh, as you know opposed to down here. Well, um, for the stone crab, the life cycle is similar, to, uh, regardless of where they're at. But the blue crab has seven larval stages. The stone oh, wow. crab has five. Hmm. Um, so it's it's a little bit better geared towards laboratory studies in the sense that you only have 
five larval stages, you have two less stages you have to worry about for extra mortality in the lab than uh, than a blue crab. Gotcha. Um, How many larval stages did you have? I had <laughs> one. <laughs> only, only, only one. No. <laughs> no, okay. So if I were to ask most uh, kids or adults what their favorite animal is, I'm guessing they might not say crabs. They're not going to say crabs. But I think that's pretty interesting that they're transforming that many times throughout their life. Maybe a lot of... Um, Maybe a lot of different invertebrate species do that, but I don't have a lot of knowledge. So what's cool about crabs? Well, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I, one of the things I have always been fascinated with is the fact that they, they look like an alien when they hatch. Yeah. And they look, they look nothing like what we think of a, as a crab with their, with their morphology and their shape um, until they get to that juvenile stage. So they go through five larval stages, and then they molt to a tadpole stage. Basically, it's, it's a crab that has claws but has a tail, and it swims up and down in the water column. Oh. Um, and then after that, they'll molt into the juvenile. So um, that's one thing that's very unique about them and one thing that I've always enjoyed and has been attracted to. Um, i got to ask, why is that much complexity necessary? Do, does anyone know that? Yeah, I, well, we think evolutionarily it's, it's, a, it's a mechanism that helps them to disperse away from the adult population and away from coastal areas Mm. where there's visual predators like larval fish um, and then develop away from those areas and then recruit back to those nursery habitats later in life so it helps alleviate some of that um, pressure basically Mm. so that's one working hypothesis that's out there for for why so many of these inverts have these larval dispersal stages neat yeah um, but the other reason why i like them is they're I mean, we, we eat them. I mean, it's, it's an important fishery. It's not, uh, it's, it's something that we value. And, and like you guys are mentioning earlier in the podcast, I mean, we have in Florida, we have, uh, uh festivals dedicated to them and, and oh, it would be devastating. Yeah, if, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's a very important part of our culture here in Florida. And so, um, that's another thing that interests me is having something that relates to the broader impact of, of, Haley's, Haley's high school mascot was the uh, stone crab. Liar. <laughs> anyway, <So> crabs. <laughs> so what, what's, what's been your biggest challenge so far, do you think? Um, with this research? Yeah. No, with your haircut. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's a really nice haircut. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the biggest challenge is actually uh, designing the experimental setups because to, to manipulate the ocean pH takes a lot of knowledge of ocean chemistry, but also a lot of manipulation with fine-scale changes to how much carbon dioxide you're injecting into the system. But then when you add temperature to it, it's another variable that, that's going to change some of the, the pH components of the carbonate system. So um, getting that balance in an ocean acidification temperature study is, is tricky. Um, so you're saying like pH is not independent of temperature um, if you change the temperature? There's some relationship there, huh. yeah, yeah, um, but it, the, the, tr- like, the biggest, the, tr- the trickiest part is again just being able to mo- you have to monitor those changes um, so frequently, and it takes up a lot of time. Um, and th- the raising the crab part is actually the easier part. Are you here at like midnight checking the pH? <laughs> um, once I get started, I probably will be. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> That's well, the- and are, are you getting any help from the, because uh, we've got some scientists that are actually studying uh, OA. Are they giving you any uh, pointers or tips on? Um, yes, I've, I've worked with uh, Emily and Aaron before. Um, and so we're, we're talking about ways to do some of this work. Um, and so actually, I'll probably start using some of um, 
the ocean acidification here, the system that's already up and running because it's already designed. Um, but still, if you have every, every experiment, it's a little different. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. So their their coral experiments that they do here are going to be much different than my larval experiments because you know, the corals you just plop in the tank. You don't have to worry about the flow. You nope. don't to, yep. Yep. You but can the larvae, over, though, overflow the whole bit. Yeah, yeah the larvae, though, mm -hmm. they can swim out. They can clog the filters. So you have to you have to There's design little, the system a little bit little differently. A little different, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I want to switch gears for a sec because I, I saw in your bio that you're not just a scientist, but you've been a teacher also um, for right. much of your career. So tell me about that. Yeah. Um, before I came back to start my Ph.D. in 2011, I taught in Brevard Public Schools for five years. Uh, and then I resigned, did my Ph.D., and after my Ph.D., I taught um, for one more year in Tampa Public Schools or Hillsborough County Public Schools. Um, Eastern Florida State College, I taught there for a couple of years, and I'm still an adjunct at St. Pete College. Um, so, yeah, I've, I have quite a bit of uh, teaching or education experience um, as a Florida-certified teacher. Wow. Did, your, did your science stuff make it into the classroom a lot? Did you... It did real world examples. Yeah, that, that was one of the great things I loved about it was yeah. um, I could bring, you know, real real examples from the literature that I knew about right into right into my lessons, or more importantly, the labs. I did a lot of labs with my students, and so um, incorporating or trying to mimic some of the experiments that are already in the literature with my students through um, some inquiry teaching methods in the lab was a lot of fun to to be part of. Yeah. Well, and a, a lot of fun for the students as well. Yeah, they loved it. They oh, loved it. Yeah. Oh yeah, my high school teachers weren't that cool. I gotta say, <laughs> <laughs> they were they were okay, but they weren't like they weren't like acting scientists. I don't think so. <laughs> that's kind of awesome. I uh, before we uh, wrap up, I was gonna ask you if you had any um, funny or, or memorable moments from your career doing this work or teaching or anything. You know. Um, Any crab adventure stories? <laughs> crab adventure stories, yeah. Um, man, I'm sure I have some. You hanging any uh, stone crabs from your earlobes or anything like that? No, I don't <laughs> recommend it either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you've seen they, it done, huh? <laughs> they, they can clamp down pretty hard, um, and, and their claws are pretty powerful. You know, with the blue crab, they'll pinch you, and it'll, it'll hurt, but you put your finger back or your hand back in the water and they release stone crabs don't want to release. They, they have a death grip. So has um, it have, have any of you or you or any of your colleagues, um, been, been, uh, subjected to that death grip. <laughs> I've been working with stone crabs since 2007 yeah. and I've never been bit by one or, or clamped down Clamp. by one. I've been fortunate. Um, but I did have a colleague that, uh, we were out snorkeling, um, for, collecting the stone crabs. We were collecting them by hand, and uh, she had on a, I think it was a three or five mil thick glove, and one got hold of her, and, and she she was not happy. She said it, it hurt even through that glove. Oh. Um, it's still really, Ugh. yeah, I, I usually try to, um, usually a stone crab barrel will have two sides, because they, they have a, yeah. a secret getaway um, door, and so I try to find which way that we're in it, and then go in and Get, get it from the other yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. The good thing about them, though, they're not quick like a blue crab. They're much slower to react and move than a blue crab. So you can, if you can get in behind them and grab their back legs, um, you're safer. <laughs> but <laughs> but th those holes that they live in, though, are, are pretty tight to begin with. So it's so, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, <laughs> you just heard the secret to catching a blue crab. <laughs> a stone, a stone crab. crab. Or sto yeah. Sorry, stone crab. Grab them by the back legs. Yep. yep. I, I wouldn't trust myself that far to stick my hand down a burrow of anything. No, a hole but of anything. Th yeah. there's other things that live in those those burrows as well, and they're, they're <laughs> yeah. not the only ones in there. And, and there's 
some nasty fish that'll have spines too that live in there. Um, nice. Okay, scorpion nix fish that. Or... Don't yeah. be sticking your hands in anything. Go to your local restaurant or fishery. Yeah, that's uh, the best fish way. house. Right. And, Just and let me say, like, crabs. blanket statement. Like, don't ever take advice from our podcast unless, <laughs> unless you've, you know, unless it's coming from somewhere official. Unless don't. it comes from me. No, no. Joe. Shut up. Listen to Joe. <laughs> I think that's all the questions I've got. How about you? I'm good. Phil, um, please let, let me know when uh, you get this uh, lab set up. Yeah, uh, I, I will. Uh, maybe I will. I'd like to come by and uh, take a look. I'll bring some butter. <laughs> there's, there's no time you can come when it will be unoccupied, not even midnight. you got to check that pH. There will yeah. be somebody there. Okay. But, no, thank you very much for Absolutely. Uh, Thanks stopping for by me. and uh, chatting with us. This yeah. is great. Yeah, so we'll um, we'll look forward to seeing uh, all of our listeners for another episode of Two C Fans at Moat in two weeks.